Good morning. morning. It's good to be back. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study again. We are so amazed at your beauty and the way you have created your universe to run. We ask that your angels will join us this morning, that your spirit will be with us, our hearts will be drawn together in love as we worship you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number four today in the quarterly Jeremiah, and the title is Rebuke and Retribution. And the memory text is out of Jeremiah seventeen fourteen. It says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. What do you notice about this text? Have you heard of something called parallelism? And it's a, it is a um, method of writing a technique where you basically mirror or parallel in different words the same concept over to kind of reemphasize it. And notice what they parallel here. They parallel healing and saving. Do you think it's accidental? No. This is exactly what actual salvation is. It's healing, it's restoration, it's regeneration. Notice also in the passage, as you look at the healing now, who, who does the healing? Heal me, O Lord. Yes, notice, the Lord does the healing. Who's in need of healing? Jeremiah and us, we're in need of healing. Who gets the praise or the credit for the healing? The Lord does. What role does the sin-sick person play? Ask. Ask, yeah. The the need, yes, exactly. Um, How does, uh, what law does healing operate upon? It's a design law. It's how things are. Yes, the laws of health. Exactly. Including spiritual healing. Where is in this passage the place for a legal transaction? Do doctors ever give their patients rules to follow, however? Why? Why do doctors give their patients rules to follow? You've all, I'm sure some of you have seen a doctor and been given some rules to follow. There's a reason for it, though, isn't there? So you can be healed. Yes. Uh, Did God give his patients rules to follow? Yes. What if a patient refuses to follow the doctor's instructions? What does the doctor do? Sends them to another doctor. (laughs) Discharges them. That's a good point. Yes. Let's them go. after, After multiple attempts to educate and redirect and encourage and so forth. What happens, though, to the patient who refuses to follow the doctor's direction? Who is non-compliant, as we say. They get worse and worse from their condition, don't they? What does God do to those who refuse to follow his instructions? After he cries over them, yes, yes, but does he punish them? What happens to the sinners in the end? Well, keep all that in mind because it's going to play in as we, as we go into the next part of the lesson. Uh, first paragraph says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. What do you understand it to mean? History pre- repeats itself. I know. Why does history repeat itself? Have you thought about why? Why does it do that? Because we don't learn the first time. Okay, because maybe we don't learn. There's a, that's a huge part of it. Is it also, though, because there's actually, behind it all, two antagonistic motives that are constants at war? God's law of love, what the Bible calls the law of sin and death, or the principle of selfishness, is behind it, and they are, they are predictable. 
love works in a certain way over and over again. Selfishness works in a certain way over and over again. And when they face each other, you have predictable things happening. So history repeats itself. This is a... I'm going to take you through a section of uh, a book called Desire of Ages, starting page 761. Read a little section, and I want you to see how the problem started and how history repeats itself. This is uh, starting on page 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Now pause, just with this little bit. What kind of law is Satan describing here? What kind of law requires the infliction of punishment if you break it? Impose law, a law that has no inherent consequence to it. This is Satan's lie, began in heaven. He argues that God's laws are not, he's, he, they're not the laws of a creator who builds the fabric of space, time, the molecules, matter, life itself, and, and how relations work. It's not the, the laws upon which reality function. No, that God is really no better than a created being. He's just more powerful, making up rules and then threatening you coercively with punishment if you don't keep his rules. Every sin must be punished, urged Satan. Now, next sentence in the, in the paragraph. God according to Satan, could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. And what's the basis of this allegation? Satan is alleging, God can't be just and be merciful. The, based on what law construct? Again, it comes right back to the law construct. You see, if in fact, and just think about the human laws, if we have a law, or maybe we just go to a baseball game, Imagine if there was no umpire and the rules were not enforced. And one player gets to uh, hit a foul ball, but they call it a home run. Immediately, this is not fair. This is unjust. Isn't that what would happen? Yes, immediately would happen. Because when you have arbitrary rules, it requires some consistent application of enforcement. Or there's no justice. This is Satan's allegation. God's rules require enforcement. However, if you took a Protestant, Catholic, and Muslim to the top of the Empire State Building and they all jumped off, does gravity treat them differently? It doesn't matter what their beliefs are. Gravity is a constant. You see, this is how God's law works. It's constant, always. So, next, next sentence in the paragraph. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Now, just pause and think about that for a minute. Different position, how? Different position legally, don't have as good a lawyer, or maybe we have a better lawyer. Lucifer had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as to no other created being was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. Why? Think about it. He rebelled. He sinned. He's a sinner now. Why, why was there no more, given what we read, that God could do? Did, was God, did God love Lucifer less than he loved human beings? Was Jesus unwilling to give his life for Lucifer? Was the payment of Jesus' blood insufficient legal payment for an angel? Were the legal court system in heaven unwilling to hear the case of a fallen angel? Do you see the real problems we get into when you have a legal model? 
But when you have a design model, then you understand, wait a second, what is it that actually brings us back to trust? What is it that makes our position different than that of Lucifer's? Lucifer sinned in the light of God's glory. To him is no other created being. He understood the truth, and he'd rejected the truth. And when you reject truth and you settle into a lie, what else can win you back if you've already decided you're not going to have any truth? So here's man's position. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry, the height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in, as we have been historically, at least I was raised, maybe some of you were, our hope is in the payment that Jesus has made to pay our penalty. But that's not what's said here. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. What is it that man needs? You see, man was in a different position. He hadn't had a full revelation of God's character. He had actually believed lies and truth about God's character win us back to loyalty and trust. Keep going. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. Now this, this phrase is often latched upon by people who want to have a, an imposed law construct. What does it mean, though? And, and it, 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 um, it unfolds itself, but before I, I read what the author wrote, I just want you to process it in your mind. What does justice look like? What is the just course to take? What defines justice? How do we determine what justice is? Setting things right, doing what's right, and what defines the right? What's the arbiter of, of the definition of right and wrong? Truth, ultimately, universal truth, which originates. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God's character of truth, sure. So in any system, what's just or right is determined by the law of that system. And so in God's system, it's God's law that determines what's just or right. And thereby, it all comes back to how do you understand God's law? Do you understand it functionally, no different than what you and I can do, the system of rules that we enforce? Or do you see him... As Revelation calls, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the creator, the designer. And so the very next sentence in the quote, the law reveals the attributes of God's character. And not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Why could it not be changed to meet man in his fallen condition? This is not a trick question. Things would fall apart. For if, if Yes, why, what, why would things fall apart? That's exactly right. Because you have no basis for anything to function anymore. So you're saying if God were to change his law, he's changed the very fabric of how the cosmos and reality is constructed to operate. Gravity doesn't work. Molecular bonding doesn't work. Uh, all, it, the way things are just built, it doesn't work anymore. So things fall apart. That's true. So it would be like saying this. The law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a person drowning in 10 feet of water. You can't change that law. That's, what, that's all it's saying here. But you have to get your mind around design law. If you're still operating in an imperial law system, it, it, it makes God out to be, because he's unwilling to change, because he'd already made it, he couldn't make a better rule, there's no better rule than the one he made. And now... The statement that God said that I change not is looked as an arbitrary, selfish thing rather than a beautiful design pro, uh, principle. 
Exactly. Next words. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Why was that necessary? Because man was now deviant from the design. We're in a terminal state. We're dying. Dying, you will die. Christ came not only to reveal the truth, to win us to trust, but to fix what's broken in the human condition and put us back in perfect harmony with God's design. Yes. I don't ponder that enough, that God sacrificed himself that in Christ. God died that day on the cross. God the Father died. And it's not, it's not something that... <clears throat> it's not something I spend enough time re- pondering and reconciling, or I have in the past. Uh, I'm starting to do more. But it's something that needs to be considered. Yeah. Yes. So notice now, the very next words, this idea of meeting justice, you know, that mercy does not set aside justice, that, uh, that, that the law cannot be changed, that God sacrificed himself. So now we're going to see what was necessary for saving of man. The very next words. The law requires... Now, traditionally how we were raised with that kind of penal model, what kind of things usually get thrown in there? The law requires payment, appeasement, propitiation, blood, penalties. Yeah, this is what, notice what this says. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. It would be like saying the law of respiration requires you breathe. That's what it requires. It doesn't require it be appeased. It requires you. The law of God is the law of life, and it requires that we live in harmony with it, which is perfect righteousness. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through, we're typically taught, the proper penalty has been paid, through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Notice what's happening here is actual objective reality changed. It is not subjective moral influence only. Christ became man and developed a new perfect human character. The trajectory of humankind in Adam was a trajectory of rebellion, selfishness, and deviation from God's design leading to an eternal death. Christ steps in the middle of that trajectory, becomes man, and alters the outcome, developing a perfect character, reconciling us back to God. This is objective reality. The human species in the person of Jesus Christ was transformed and renewed and rebuilt. And you've got scriptures that talk about this, how the two were brought together uh, into the one, and he made a new man. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. How? By having our hearts built up in the similitude of the divine. By surrendering and trust to Christ, we open the heart and the spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. And you know the scriptures, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have the law written on the heart and mind. We become partakers of the divine nature. We get a new heart and right spirit. We have circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. This is not metaphor. This healing idea is not metaphor, it's reality. We are rebuilt, we are regenerated, we are recreated, we are renewed. 
If you see someone drowning, is it right and just to pull them from the water and administer CPR? How about if it's your five-year-old son? Is it right and just to do so? Of course it is. That's justice. That's what justice looks like. And what laws are under operation? The laws of health, the laws of respiration. Why, if you want them to live, must you do this? Because it's the only way life is built to operate. Thus you see God in Christ taking these actions to restore humanity back into the design so that we can live. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It had been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. But Christ shows that in God's plan, they are indissolubly joined together. The one cannot exist without the other. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. question is, how does Satan attempt to divorce mercy from truth and justice? How does he attempt to do that? And how does the imposition, that, that claim make that separation? Think about it. We have mercy operating here. We have, and I'll, I'll throw in a word, investigation of truth and the application of justice a- acting over here. Now, if you have mercy, can you think of any type of representations that you've been taught coming up where you have merciful God and you have investigating truth, application of justice God? Have you ever had that? Have you ever seen that? Is it clicking some ideas now? Do we see a theology that Christianity teaches where we have a member of the Godhead who is merciful to us, who loved us, who sacrificed himself, who pleads his blood in a heavenly courtroom, arguing in our behalf to save us, to a truth-investigating, justice-applying, arbiter, magistrate, dictator, if you will. Now we have caused a rift, a split. We have severed and severed and separated mercy in the Godhead from truth and justice in the Godhead. This is the presentation of the, the doesn't matter denomination. Every Christian denomination has this construct widely accepted. Some denominations not only have Jesus, but Mary and all the saints pleading for mercy. It's a wide rift. It's severed. It's disconnected. We also see it in lots of arguments. Jesus pleads his blood to the Father. Jesus covers us with his blood so the Father can't see us. Jesus applies his blood to our record so the Father can't punish us for our bad deeds. Jesus is our heavenly attorney and argues our case before the Father to protect us from the judgment and punishment. Jesus took our place and was executed by the Father on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus covers us with his righteousness so the Father can't see our wickedness. On and on and on the theories go. And notice what they functionally are doing. Every one of these doctrines are designed to hide us from God rather than reconcile us to him. That's what they're functionally doing. We don't trust him. We don't love him. We love Jesus because he's protecting us from someone who will kill us if they really know how bad we are. And thus we have the doctrine of justification by faith taught in the penal model that says this. When you accept Jesus' payment at your behalf, you are legally declared to be righteous in the courts of heaven even though you are not. God doesn't see how unrighteous you are. He only looks at his son and applies what he sees in his son to your legal case. For God is easily fooled. It's a big fraud. Amen. 
Now, we actually partake of the divine nature. We are, as it read in this text, he builds up the human character in the similitude of the divine. Thus, when God looks into us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, not because it covers us, because we are regenerated to be like Christ. We have died to self, and we live to love God and others more than self. We've been renewed. That's the gospel message. By the life and death by his life and death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Satan's charges were refuted. God had given man unmistakable evidence of his love. Another deception was now being brought forward. History now repeats itself. And what's the other deception? Satan declared that mercy destroys justice, that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. What kind of law can be rescinded, changed, or abrogated? What kind of law? Imposed law. So here we have in heaven, every sin must be punished. Imposed law construct. We've got that dealt with. Christ comes down through history. He reveals the truth of God's design. He restores love. And now we have another attempt to suggest God's law is arbitrary. Well, now that the penalty has been paid, now that, uh, that God has been merciful, uh, now that forgiveness has been granted, then the law, you don't have to worry about the law. The law has just been done away with. You can set it aside. Why can you set it? Because it's arbitrary. It's a system of rules. History is repeating itself. Satan declared that mercy destroyed... Yes, we already said that. Had it been possible for the law to have been changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to his precepts that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Again, for the same reason why you can only live if you breathe. Design law. Yet the very means that which Christ established the law, Satan represents as destroying it. How does he represent the cross as destroying God's law? Can you think? How is the cross put out by Christians in such a way that it actually ends up being argued to destroy God's law? Pardon? Legal payment. Legal payment, number one. Well, you can have God killing his own son. Which is that legal payment. So we actually replace the idea of design law, God of love, with an arbitrary system of rules. And on the cross, God and justice had to rain wrath down upon his son. Or even in one of our own quarterlies, they described the fire of God coming down and consuming him on the cross. As, uh, and, they, and, they, and they merged the cross with fire coming down in Elijah's day and saying that was God doing this to his son on the cross. What kind of law is that? We have replaced the truth of God's law, the necessity of what Christ achieved for us, with this simple system of rules that human beings and created beings make. And then the other idea is that, well, it was all just done away with. There's no law anyway. Just do whatever you want. That's why the understanding of God's character is the central point of it. Because if I believe God to be wrathful and vengeful, then I need Jesus to cover me because I'm not holy. I'm yeah. not perfect. And then, yes, you're exactly right. So if I believe him to be a loving God that is in tandem with Christ, he looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the fact that I still have problems, I still have behaviors. He looks at my heart and accepts me because I have turned my heart to him while he brings me back to healing. And then we pray like David, Father, search me and see the wicked way in me, create in me a clean heart, O God. Not Jesus, cover me and hide me so the Father can't see the wicked way in me. Completely different prayers. It's changed me. Yes, it's transformational. And that's what God wants for us. He wants to transform us here and now. Thank you. 
And those who, though, go down the imposed law construct, though, and have this legal idea that God must punish, they end up practicing those methods in their lives. These are the ones who, in the name of their God, can burn people at the stakes, can do inquisitions, can want to get the right senators and judges in place to pass the right laws in this country to make people observe the religious practices the way they think they should be observed because this is what God does. He sets up his rules and then he enforces them coercively. Next words. Oh, here will come the last conflict in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. What will it be on? The the sentence right before it was, yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represents as destroying it. Next sentence, here will come the last conflict in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Over what? How do you view God's law? And so the next words in this quotation, by substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. Human law. And oftentimes many people in this denominational organization have distilled that down to one, one rule, which day you worship on, rather than understanding it's really the entire law a system of imposed rules. And when you accept that, it changes your character and you become a person who is willing to coerce. And that's where you become sealed in your forehead because if you're so settled into the lie that God operates this way and you believe it's righteous to actually punish and and kill and God must kill the wicked and he must torture them and we must pray, then we are sealed in our forehead. We have the mark of the beast in our forehead because we're marked to be beastly. But if, on the other hand, we don't necessarily believe it, we just go along with it because it's expedient and we don't want to have that torture come to us. So we, we, we go along and we support it with our actions and deeds. We're marked in our hands to be beastly. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others, and in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow men. Next sentence. And that only happens when we see God's laws imposed. You see, history repeats itself. Look at history. How many times religious organizations got a hold of governmental power and they practiced this method? They coerced. They force, they imprison, they torture people who don't believe. Look what's happening with the Taliban right now in parts of the world. They, they have this imposed law. And, and America's, there are people in America trying to do the same thing right now. Watch the political debates, listen subtly for what the things they're saying about certain practices and things they want to do with the government. The warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will be continued Until the end of time, every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed, and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Do you notice? I don't know if you heard it. Which law you choose determines which character you develop. And which character to develop depends, determines which side you're on in the end. That is not a judicial process. That is a functional, operational process of how reality works. Design law stuff. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined with him in rebellion will be, notice, cut off. Think about that. Why are they cut off? Sin and sinners will perish, root and branch. This is not an act of arbitrary power on God's part. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. 
And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. Notice, again, design law, not an imposed penalty. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. His very presence to them is a consuming fire. At the beginning, this is, I'm almost done with this quote, at the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. What did they not understand? In heaven. They didn't understand God's design law. They were duped by this idea. Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. If God remits the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of justice. They bought into the imposed law concept. That's what they didn't understand. Next, next verse. This next sentence. Had Satan and his hosts been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as an evil seed. What is this author saying sin results in? Because? It results in death because? Because you cut yourself off from the source of life. Is it not an arbitrary act on God's power to inflict it? Angels would not have understood that had it happened then. Thus, this whole process. How about on earth today? Do human beings clearly understand this today? Or are most Christians teaching that God must use his power to punish and kill the wicked in the end? History repeats itself over and over again. We have the same dynamic going on. In the next paragraph, it states that prophets who were often called to deliver words of warning and rebuke to those who should have known better. They were often called to deliver warnings of of rebuke to those who should have known better. Do we today, as a people, have a message to give to the world, a message of warning and perhaps even rebuke? And it might even be to some people who should know better. And it says the last sentence in that, says that Jeremiah, whose ministry seemed to consist of nothing but rebuke and retribution, he giving the rebuke and the leaders giving the retribution. Does that history read itself as well? People who have a message from God often get rebuked by their leadership. I mean, get re- retribution by their leadership. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, the Bible presents to us only two options on how to live. We either follow the Lord with all our hearts and souls, or we don't. Do you agree with that? No. What's the third way? We either follow the Lord with all our hearts or we don't. What's the third way? I was mean that the two ways, the Bible presents one way of life. Ah, I see. There's only one way of life, but there's also the second way, which is the way of sin and death. Yes. Yeah, okay. But that's not the way of life. No, it's not the way of life. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. You know, and how to live. Okay, I got you. So it's not that that way is the way how to die is what you're saying. Yeah, it could be said that way. Yeah. So what happens if we don't follow the way of life, God's way? How we answer the question, what happens to people who won't follow God's way? How we answer the question will reveal what law model you look through, what lens you're looking through. Is it one, like a patient refuses to follow the treatment of the doctor and is given up to die as a result of their unhealed condition? Or, like a criminal who refuses to accept the legal payment to the court, and therefore the ruling authority uses its power to inflict punishment and death. 
I mean, those are the way it's represented, really. And which one do you think is more common? Which is the, the one that the vast majority of the world accepts? Second. The second one, but it's a lie. It is an absolute lie. This is the wine of Babylon that intoxicates the world. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. We're going to read that. If you want to look there. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. It says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh, for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when he comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. This is in the lesson, asks us to read this section. What do you hear being described? Natural law. Natural law. What, it says cursed is the man. What is the curse that's described here? The lack of blessing. The lack of blessing. Notice what's described. They're cursed because they're cut off from the source of life. They're in a desolate place. They're in a desert. They're in a salt land. They're in a, they're in a situation where life does not operate. Yes. You read further, it says, um, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Nice. This is the reason. Yes. I'm going to read the text from Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, but he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Nice. What was that again, the text? Proverbs 8.36. Proverbs 8.36. Very nice. Did you notice... What happens to those who turn to the Lord, though? What, what is the description? It's from nature again. They're like trees growing by the stream that always are connected to the source of life, which in this is the water. Remember, Jesus used the metaphor of the woman at the well. If you would have asked, I would have given you the living water. It would have welled up inside you. So the water is a symbol of life that they're connected to, and then they never stop bringing forth fruit, no matter how hot the sun is. It's a natural thing. What do you understand regarding the condition of the human heart from this passage? It's completely untrustworthy. The natural state of our heart. And you notice it says, uh, what do you think it means that God searches the heart? How do you understand that? Again, which law lens do you look through? For what purpose? Is he searching the heart like a judge for reasons to reward and punish? Or like a doctor seeking all defects in order to heal and restore. I mean, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Yeah. And we have that other idea in our mind. Understand, operationally inside the person's psyche, inside their mind, when you have the idea that he's the judge searching to punish, it causes fear, which causes a barricade, which means you desperately want to be out from trouble, but you really don't trust him to do it. And it keeps us from truly trusting God. When we come to see him as Jesus revealed and understand he operates in this way, then we realize there's something wrong with us, but he's not mad at us for us. He only loves us and wants to resource. And so we do pray like David. Yes, I know I'm all broken up inside. I know there's all kinds of problems. It's a big mess in there, but I know you can fix it. It's kind of like uh, a parent 
If we, if we see God in that manner, we automatically react in self-defense, trying to protect ourselves, defend ourselves. It's kind of like a parent with a toddler saying, did you do this, or did, did you take a cookie? No, um, while their crumbs are coming off their lips, God. right? Exactly. <laughs> Chocolate is on there. <laughs> oh, I didn't have any. Chocolate all over their face. <laughs> That's good. And that actually goes to the next, next part of this, which is the language of why does he look, it says, why the language which looks on the heart to find out the deeds? By their deeds, it said in here. Why? Symptoms. Yes, exactly. Beautiful symptoms. Because he's speaking to children who focus on the deeds, and he's trying to teach them, as Christ taught in the Beatitudes, that the deeds are not working of the heart, or by the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Thus, the condition of the heart will ultimately be determined, determined by the actions. So the Father isn't about the specific deeds, but the motives, the motives of the heart. So the chocolate on the face reveals what was happening. So if we went about it differently as a parent, basically what we're doing is we're telling our child to lie to us, right? <laughs> and uh, but So we really got to think through our process, and I don't think God deals with us that way, but we interpret that that's what it's going to be. It's not just in children, it's in marriages. I see this in marriages all the time, folks. Marriages all the time where people lie to each other because they've created an atmosphere where they fear retribution, fear the, the spouse being mad, the spouse being disappointed, the spouse getting their feelings hurt, the spouse stomping, the spouse slamming the door, the spouse pouting, the spouse grumpling or whatever. And because there's this anticipate, anticipation of fear, then the other spouse, the one who is, will withhold information, will not fully disclose, will kind of airbrush the truth to try to give it a little bit of a different spin so there won't be... And, and there's, because there's not an atmosphere that's, I love you, and I know you're not perfect. And even though you're not perfect, I know your heart's for me. So when you make mistakes, it's all good. I'm going to love you anyway. Let's just work it out together. When you create that atmosphere, then there's openness. You can tell each other anything. But often, under, and, and you'll see, I see it in pra- people, good Christian homes, they come to me, and they're under this kind of behavior model, deeds model, rather than heart model. So talks about the human heart being deceitful. I don't think it's talking about finite things like, well, you know, we got the question wrong because we didn't fully understand calculus when we took the exam and therefore we answered it wrong. It's not talking about mistakes and errors and judgment because we're finite or ignorant or not having the facts. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about we purposely deceive ourselves about known defects in ourselves. We don't want to look in the mirror of truth. Now, I use metaphors with my patients because many people have family members who have serious defects of character, but they don't want to deal with their own defects of character. And so they condition everyone in their world around them to only give them the feedback that they want to hear about themselves. And the metaphor I use with my patients, I said, imagine you had a relative who had really gross fungating lesions on their face. Pus draining out, just really gross. It's a metaphor. And they don't like to look at it. They don't want to deal with it. So they've hired an artist to come in and paint a beautiful picture of themselves on every mirror in their house. So every time they walk by a mirror, they see a beautiful picture of themselves. What will happen if you come into their house with Windex and start cleaning the mirrors? How will you be treated? Will they appreciate that? Or will you be attacked and criticized? You're always trying, you're trying to make me look bad. You're trying to run me down. You're, and they won't want to be, you, see, the mirrors and the metaphor are people. People in our lives reflect back to us information. 
not always accurate. Sometimes people like funhouse mirrors and everything they reflect back is quite warped. And so you have to use your judgment on how you hear the feedback you get. But that's what they are. And you'll notice that there are certain people, and you probably if you, if you take an inventory of the people in your social circle, you will be able to point these out. They're the ones that nobody ever is honest with. Because they know if you say something, they will blow up. They'll have a meltdown. They'll cry. They can't take it. So everybody's always walking on eggshells around them, saying only what that person wants to hear. Because they can't take it if you don't. I stopped playing that game a long time ago. And I've had a few interesting moments in, in social circumstances. <laughs> and, those, and those, I can tell you what happens if you do this, you will have a, a tense moment at your home when this happens and you don't act the role of letting them tell you how you should respond. You act more truthfully. But what will happen is those people will stop their little games around you. You will often not have to put up with them as much because they won't hang out around you much. They won't. They don't want to be around mirrors that reflect them. These are the people who Christ said, they live in darkness, they don't want to come in the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. And I'm not talking about going and and simply calling names and name-casting. I'm talking about when their behavior is overtly disruptive and you're required to respond in some way and you don't respond in the way they want. That's what I'm talking about. How people deceive themselves... Oh, the man who beats his wife and tells her he does it only because he loves her? Yeah, I see this. person who buys a gift for their spouse, telling himself or herself that they do it because they love the spouse, but really they're doing it to offset the guilt they have for something they've done that they shouldn't have done. These types of things. Monday's lesson, Jeremiah 17, 1-4. Judah's sin is engraved with a hot with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Ashereth poles beside the, spreading and tre- beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain and the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land uh, you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. What does it mean, sin engraved on the hearts and the horns of the altar? It's a metaphor. This is a metaphor, but what's it actually trying to say? When you sin, what happens to your character, your heart, your mind, your, your brain even? Your conscience is seared. Your character is warped. Every time you participate in rebellion, you become under conviction. And if you don't repent and thus experience grace and healing, your heart becomes hardened over time. So it's actually shaping the kind of person you are. That's what it's talking about. What does God do here? He removes his protective hand. He lets them reap what they've freely chosen. And what do we reap whether it was 4,000 years ago in Babylon or today in 2015, what do we reap if we participate in sin? That's the ultimate outcome. Do we get freedom or do we get slavery? Is the addict free or a slave? Is the person who abuses their body free or a slave? Is the person who cheats Cheats on the spouse, cheats at work, cheats on their taxes, cheats anywhere, cheats at school. Are they free or are they a slave? How are they a slave? Slave to what? 
Slave to fear, slave to insecurity, slave to guilt, and all the things that they will do, but they're not free anymore. How about any violation of God's law enslaves us? Some we can see more obviously, like the addict who is a physical enslavement. They're not free to do the things. A person who with who is not cared for their body in a healthy way. They, they've become very deconditioned. Maybe they've smoked and they've got bad COPD. You know what COPD is? Okay, emphysema sometimes called. Are they free? Can they walk as many steps as somebody else? Can they climb stairs? Have the, has their actual condition been, been, the freedom has been reduced, reduced, reduced by their very condition? Maybe they're restricted to a wheelchair. They have to have oxygen everywhere they go. Their freedoms are encroached upon. By what? By reality. We only have freedom as we come back into harmony with God and his design. Oswald Chambers, uh, I wanted to mention that bit about the anger at the end. His anger is forever. Depends on what law lens you're looking through. Do you look through the imposed law lens? Or do you look through design law? God is angry at sin like a doctor is angry at disease. Thus, his anger never ends. Good doctors always hate disease but love their patients. God will always hate sin, which damages and destroys, but he loves sinners, even those who die in the end. And even doctors who have patients that won't comply hate the disease that destroys the patient, but they love the patient, and if the patient maybe is their own child, they'll cry as they lose the patient, but they don't hate the patient. They hate the disease. So God would say, instead of... Did you do that to yourself? Or did you? He would say, so I see you have chocolate all over your face. Uh, What do you think that's going to do to you right now? He's going to go about it totally differently than what we've been doing. Yeah, and it's really the issue of Adam in Eden hiding from God. I hid. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding, Adam? It's only you and me. Yeah. Why are you afraid of me? Why are you afraid of me? And that's the question. Why are you afraid of me, son? Do you think this is good for you? Yeah, exactly. So Oswald Chambers, in Conform to His Image, page 363, wrote, When we speak of the wrath of God, we must not picture him as an angry sultan on the throne of heaven, bringing a lash about people when they do what he does not want. There is no element of personal vindictiveness in God. It is rather that God's constitution of things is such that when a man becomes severed from God, his life tumbles into turmoil and confusion, into agony and distress. It is hell at once. And he, it, he will never get out of it unless he turns to God. Immediately he turns, chaos is turned to cosmos, wrath into love, distress into peace. Knowing therefore the terror of our Lord, we persuade men to keep in touch with him. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Tuesday's lesson. Uh, let's see, I might want to skip down and come back to that because we're running short on time. There's a couple of points I want to make. Um, so let's go to Wednesday's lesson. And it asks us to read Jeremiah 12, 1 through 4. It says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why, do, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow a, and bear fruit. You are always on, the lips, on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts 
about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who lived in it are wicked and animals, the animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying he will not see what happens to us. The lesson states what is being described here is a legal problem with legal language and that, and that Jeremiah is making a legal case before God because it's a legal problem when we sin. What are your thoughts on that? We've read the scripture he's, and Jeremiah says, uh, I bring a case before you and he makes his case and thus the, the, the authors are, are using this to prove that our sin problem is a legal problem. This is a classic error that many people make when reading Scripture. They read a Scripture and they believe that that portion of Scripture is communicating God's truth, not in these verses. In these verses, what's being communicated is Jeremiah's heart, Jeremiah's position, Jeremiah's attitude, in much the same way that Jonah grumbled and griped about, much the same way that you read in Psalms 137, 8 and 9, where it says, Babylon will be destroyed. Happy are those who pay you back for what... You have done to us who take your babies and smash them against rocks. Psalms 137. Do we think this is a, a, a prophecy from God? This is God's heart. We should be more godly. Let's take babies and smash them on rocks. No, this is, this is the heart of a human being. This is the heart of a sinner. Every Bible writer was a sinner who had selfishness in their own hearts that they were struggling with as they were working for the Lord looking through the, lo- the lenses that they had on, trying to understand. And Jeremiah is struggling to understand this himself, and he comes to God and says, it's not right, it's not fair. And he's making the legal case. And so you see God working with his human agents. But God contrasts Jeremiah's plea. Notice the very next verses. here's God's contrast to what Jeremiah said. This is God now. I, I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I loved into the hands of their enemies. What's God doing? What's his action? Why is he doing it? Because how does love work? If you're married and your wife or husband, which either way goes, decides to leave you for another person, while you may love them and you, and you entreat with them and you, and you reach out to them and you do everything you can to try and reconcile that marriage, if at the end of the day the person insists on leaving you, what's the only loving action you can take? Let them go. This is what's going on here. I mean, think about what God has done over and over and all his entreaties and all the warnings and everything he's done to try to get them to come back to him. But in the end, they won't. So he's, what's he do? He is a God of love. He lets them go to the care of the gods that they've chosen. That's what he does. And thus we read, My inheritance has become like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. Therefore, I hate her. What does this mean, I hate her? I think it means he hates the separation, the hostility, the rebellion in the heart that prevents them from unity. Thus, he hates watching the pain and the suffering and the death, which he knows is coming upon them as they separate from him. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring, bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. This is metaphor talking about the land of Israel being completely run over by pagans with pagan god concepts and pagan troops and the whole oppression and death and torture that comes when this happens. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm, for the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be saved. Notice this metaphor, sword of the Lord. 
And I've heard preachers take passages like this and they'll say, see, if you rebel, God will use his sword and he will punish you. But what's being described here? What is the sword of the Lord? Thank you. The sword of the Lord is what? Truth. And what is the truth here? The unavoidable truth is that they've rejected God and they don't want to be with him. That's the unavoidable truth. They have severed themselves from him and thus they will suffer. That's what's being said. Thursdays, and we'll jump to Friday's lesson. Uh, just in Thursday's lesson, there's just one idea. It says that the, the iniquity testi- our iniquities testify against us. They, our iniquities, our deeds testify against us like this. If we claim to be healthy, I'm all healthy, but we're actually sick with smallpox. Will the smallpox legions testify against us? That's what it means. Okay, so Friday's lesson, uh, the question of trying to make sense of sin. And in Friday's lesson, they read, uh, it says, Jeremiah struggled with the question of evil. They uh, read an Ellen White quote, it says, and Ellen White says, it is impossible to explain the origin of sin so that as to give a reason for its existence. Sin is an intruder who, for whose presence no reason can be given. It is, it is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could could excuse for it be found or cause shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. And then the authors say, when tragedy strikes, we hear people say, or we ourselves, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. Well, there's a good reason that we don't understand. It's not understandable. If we could understand it, if it made sense, if it fit into some logical or rational plan, then it wouldn't be that evil. This is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what she wrote, and I want to clarify for you because it's huge. It is huge. Okay, Ellen White uh, did not say that, that pain and suffering and evil is not understandable. She said the reason for the origin of pain and suffering and evil is not understandable. For instance, it is understandable that if a person takes a knife and jabs themselves in the eye, that they will suffer pain, loss of vision, and perhaps even death. That's quite understandable, isn't it? But why would someone do this? What reason can be given to make such an action right or reasonable or sensible? None whatsoever. There is no reason that anyone would do that that makes it right or sensible. So the reason for sin is unexplainable. There's no reason. It's so, dis- it's so, distra- so out of harmony with what is normal and natural in God's design. However, when one deviates from the design, it is quite understandable why pain and suffering happens. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, hand over here. Yes, Wendell. I don't think that was the question that uh, Jeremiah was asking. Wednesday and Friday deal with the same question, and that is, Jeremiah's question was, why do those who do evil prosper? If righteousness is how the universe is designed, why do those who are going against the design seem to be more prosperous than those who practice the right things? That, he was bringing his case to God saying, wait a minute, you've set this, the, the rules are this way, and yet it looks like I don't understand. And what's the answer, Wendell? Psalm 73. When I came to the temple and saw the end result, then I understood. Okay. So, so the prospering that he saw was an illusion. It's an illusion. It's under a false concept, and it's also under a very temporary, very construed construct in which they're practicing. It's not the e- e- eternity. 
It's like the person who uses an illegal drug and for a few moments feels euphoria. And he says, oh, I'm feeling so great, and it's right. awesome. I'm and I'm prospering, right. but it's really killing you. Right. Yeah. All right, any other comments? Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our creator and yet your character is truly love and that you give us genuine freedom. But even though as a species we deviated from your design and were dying dead in trespass and sin, you didn't abandon us. You sent Christ to become one of us, to take this condition and, and overturn the, the in, inherited consequences that we inherited from Adam and, and create a new pathway, a pathway of restoration into righteousness through all that Christ has achieved in our behalf. We pray that you will pour out your spirit, take what Christ has achieved, not only lead us to the true understanding of your character and how your universe runs, but reproduce in us a heart that loves you and others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.